Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... If you go with a bot curriculum or with school curriculum, someone designed it and then they, uh, they implement it, they, they put it uh, to practice. And maybe some years later, they learn how well it did. Maybe someone did a research and see if it did well or not, and then they can change it. What we have in homeschooling, we're not that smart maybe, and we don't have like a million children to test it on, but we can see if something works right now. And we can change it right now if it doesn't. And we can try something else. So we have very short feedback loops and a lot of freedom to try many things and see what works. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. I have a very special guest for you today, and a somewhat intriguing conversation that might change your mind about a few things related to education. I'm thrilled to introduce you today, Yonat Sharon, a freelance developer, writer, speaker, and proud mom of four children. Three things are extraordinary about Yonat. First, she learned how to code at home at a very young age more or less on her own. Her journey as a developer started because her older brother got a computer, which was very common for boys, but not for girls during that time in Israel. Second, Yonat has been unschooling her four children for over 20 years. You will hear how she made this decision and why she never looked back to the traditional education system. Third, When digital communities were not a thing, she built a virtual place for the unschooling community in Israel to connect families across the country, enable them to learn, grow, and support each other. If you are a parent considering unschooling your children, our conversation will provide actionable insights to help you get started and ease your way on a learning journey where life is the curriculum. Even if unschooling is not for you, this episode will offer specific recommendations on what school can learn from unschooling to help you develop independent, lifelong learners who own their learning journey and create the life they want. And if you are a parent with your children at home struggling with distance learning, Yonat's unique experience and perspectives will help you identify opportunities to make your children's learning fun and fulfilling. On a personal note, this was the most eye-opening conversation I've had on the podcast. Not only did it help me change my mind about a few aspects of traditional education, but it also guided me to think about learning as a beautiful tool to build stronger connections with our families, friends, and communities. I hope you will enjoy our conversation, learn how to build better
better relationships with your children through learning, and who knows, you might even change your mind about education. Let's dive right in. Hello, Yonat. Welcome to Impact Learning. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite memory related to learning? I have very early memories of actually before I walked or maybe I didn't walk very well. And uh, my parents used to go a lot, uh, a lot uh, out to nature. So I was crawling around, you know, weeds and with insects and I loved it. Still do. Okay. What was it in this experience that you enjoyed? It's direct learning. You experience things directly and not through any kind of mediator with all your senses. And I think that is the best kind of learning. I see now that I, I help others learn that many times they don't get things if they're just theoretical or maybe with just one sense. But if you take several senses together at the same time, then people learn much more easily. Beautiful. Okay, we'll talk more about this. You have an interesting story about how you started with uh, learning to code and programming. How did this come about? Yeah, so many people of my generation, I'm now in my 40s, learned to code as children. So actually, uh, programming was not male-dominated uh, when it started as it is now. And my generation made it male-dominated because it seems that many fathers bought their little sons personal computers. And the little sons had the computers in their rooms and they learned to program and they later became programmers. And this is what happened to my big brother. But he didn't have his own room. We were in a small home, so the computer was in the living room. So I got to play with it too. And I became a learn to code. And uh, this is how I learned English, by the way. That's why my accent is so terrible, because the computer doesn't mind. This is how I learned English. I learned math. I learned everything through programming. Okay, now tell me a little bit more about, like, you learned to program because there was a computer at home that, you know, it was bought for your uh, brother. Help me understand, how did you go about learning? What did you do? So the computer back then didn't speak, didn't do what you want unless you told them using a programming language. To make them do anything interesting, you had to program them. Basic was my first programming language. Uh, and we had some uh, photocopied uh, instructions on the, how to do it. And uh, we, we learned from that. Did you learn together with your brother? Like, did you help each other or was it on no, your no. own? My big brother, he, he learned from the serious uh, books uh, with my father's help. And then uh, my second brother had the photocopies uh, taken from a friend and uh, he let me sit beside him when he walked. I didn't have to be quiet in some corner. And uh, when he finished, I just took the pages and uh, did it on my own. Interesting. I'm thinking, you know, like resources and tools that sometimes we have direct access or we don't. Yeah. But you know, when you like something and when you're attracted to some subject, you find anything in the environment. It doesn't matter. When, when it's your thing, you're like a magnet pulling knowledge. What was intriguing about programming for you? What did you like about? 
I still like it. Um, <laughs> it's fun. I, it's like it's like solving puzzles. A lot of programmers also like puzzles. You solve a puzzle after puzzle, and it's also you you make things. You make things work, and there is a result in the end, which is also nice. Okay, so sol- solving problems and creating things out of it. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I understand now because I did not have uh, a computer at home. Uh, neither did I have a brother. So, <laughs> you know, I did not get exposed to a computer until I was in, you know, college and grad school. So what did you study at the university? When I went to the university, a lot of people studied computer science, but they thought I already know how to program, so I, I need to study something else. And I studied the science and math. I, I wanted to be a scientist. But uh, by the time I got uh, to the last year, I, uh, I really wanted a baby. I, I, I didn't have any patience for uh, studying anymore. I didn't continue to the second degree, to the master's degree, and uh, just now I want a baby. Mm-hmm. But did you start working as a developer at all, like as you yes, were also yes. having your family? Yeah, so the baby didn't come right away. So <laughs> in the meantime, I just worked as in programming. Sometimes they come sooner, sometimes they come later. Okay. Yeah. You have four children. I do. How did you start with unschooling? So it was my oldest son. We started like everyone here in Israel. He went to daycare and uh, it was all good. Uh, in the morning when he had to go, I told him, I'm going to walk and you're going to take care. And he understood that. But when my second son was born, I took a maternal leave and I couldn't uh, convince him with a normal argument because I wasn't going to work. I, had, I, was, I was home. And uh, so it was a bit of a, of a rope pulling, you know, he wanted to stay home more. I tried to get him back into kindergarten. And uh, then I was looking for something on the internet, which was quite new then. And they saw the word homeschooling. And suddenly it all clicked. It was clear that this is what will happen, that this is where we're going. It wasn't even a decision. It was just a realization. What was the reaction or perhaps the discussion with your husband? Did, you, did he share the same views with you? Yeah, so my husband was uh, immediately for it. He's a very visionary and uh, he's an entrepreneur and he, he really uh, he thought it would be best. We didn't uh, agree about how to do it. I was leaning toward unschooling where you, you don't have a curriculum, uh, you just live life and uh, study whatever comes. He wanted it to be more structured and with, uh, with goals. Uh, so we had a big, big argument and then we decided to to check it scientifically, empirically, to make an experiment and see what happens. So we said, uh, we'll try unschooling for six months and uh, we'll see how much uh, the boy learns. You talked about homeschooling and unschooling. Not everybody's familiar with these two things as much as you are. So let's talk about the key differences before we go into, you know, the specifics of the unschooling journey for your family. So homeschooling is generally when the child learns at home and it doesn't say how he learns. So you can have a curriculum like you have in school, but teach it at home. And there's a, a whole uh, variety of, of curriculums, both free and uh, that you can buy. But with unschooling, the curriculum is, is life itself. So 
whatever you find interesting, it's what you learn, whatever the child finds interesting at what he or she learns, uh, or whatever you find interesting and the child usually will join you. Sometimes the things that you need to learn uh, from life uh, without finding them interesting. For example, now that we have a pandemic, everybody learns to learn to wash their hands, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, even if it's not very interesting, we all learned it because we need to. I want to talk a little bit more about like what they learn, how they learn, how they find it. So if they have an interest, they come to you and say, Mommy, I want to learn about this. What do you do if they ask for something that you don't know anything about? First of all, sometimes they don't ask. They just do it or find it. For example, I had a child that, uh, like many little children, he liked dinosaurs. So when we were at the library, he just took whatever book or a video or anything related to dinosaurs. I didn't see it there even. So I don't have to do much. Just, you know, I, I had to take him to the library, but, uh, you know, you go anyways. I did have children that, uh, that needed uh, things that I could not provide. For example, I, I have a child that is uh, he's an acrobat. From a young age, was into this, and I'm no good at sports at all. So I had to find other people to help him uh, outside home. Did you have experience with any of your children that wanted to study something like specific for that you did not know at all, like anything about, and you wouldn't be able to answer their questions? So you're looking for academic subjects. If, if you have this experience. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if it's an academic subject or a physical uh, subject like acrobatics. The academic subjects are easier for me because this is my personal inclination. But, uh, okay, there the were boys that wanted to know about dinosaurs. I didn't know anything about dinosaurs. Uh, he was very little, couldn't read, so I need, needed to read to him. Okay, I learned to distinguish between triceratops and uh, brontosaurus. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I did learn. I mean, you, you, can, you can read to, to them. You can find what they need. But very soon, they will find what they need. For example, when this boy was into electronics, he find again on the internet some kind of a kit. And uh, all I had to do was put my credit and, and order it. He did all the other work. Okay. And you already talked about taking them to the library. Now, a lot of the information is on the computer. So I guess this is, these are the places, I call them, that you can find either your interests or discover your interests and also the places where you get the resources. You also need to go to physical and social places, not just places of uh, theoretical knowledge. Tell me more about the physical and social environments. Yeah, so like you have, a, you go to the library, you can also go to a gathering, a homeschool gathering with other families or with other kids to meet them or to all kinds of social events. If uh, physical, it depends on what interests you. But for example, you can go hiking or you can go to a concert to hear live music. It's, it's important to actually be, uh, to, to let the children be in places that, where things happen, when in, interesting things happen, when they can meet personally, experience with all those senses, both people and the activities. Mm -hmm. You have four children that you unschooled. How mm -hmm. do you manage 
not in terms of time, but how do you manage like to meet their needs when everyone is doing their own thing? How does it work? So it never does uh, unless you have only one child. Okay. As soon as you have two, you cannot fulfill all their needs. It's impossible. So you have to choose what's most important in that moment. Maybe uh, sometimes the most important things will be to make sure that uh, the big child can uh, build these little things uh, without the uh, little ones uh, breaking it. And sometimes uh, you need to take the baby out to explore and the other one can tag along with a book. You know, you, you just juggle what you can. But no, you can't uh, give everyone uh, everything they need. What was their experience like did they did any of your children feel like they would they wanted to go back to school was there like anything they were missing or they did not like about the homeschooling activity and journey yeah no one of them did want to go to school to to be in the lab but he was only six so they didn't have a lab for six-year-olds but uh, we got him uh, like a chemistry kit and later an electronics kit and all kinds of other things to do at home. They had friends at school, so they knew what happens uh, there from their friends. I hear you talk a lot about, again, there's no curriculum. Life and life experience is yes. what, you, what they learn. So it sounds to me that unschooling is a little bit like you're developing, you're creating self-directed, free-range learners, which everyone is talking about. So what are the skills your children learned during their unschooling journey? So one of the interesting things is that each child learns different things and they are all very, very different. So one child reads like a ton of fiction. The other one... The, reads only non-fiction, okay? Third one reads a little and then stops and doesn't read for a while, okay? The first one almost almost doesn't like uh, neither fiction, non-fiction. He, does, he, he likes to talk with live people. So they are very, very different. One of them uh, does acrobatics. The, the two don't do almost uh, none of that. They just don't. The little one, you know, it takes a bit from each other. But they are very, very different. One likes science, like, I mean, he, he knows everything about every kind of science. The other two, some, some, but don't care a lot about it. Uh, so each one is very, very different from the other, and they know different things. Okay, very good. So I can imagine now if, uh, of course, they're not the same age, but there, there could be children of the same age that they have all these different interests. And they're in the same mm -hmm. uh, classroom. And if it's science, one is interested and the other three are, are bored to death. And, you know, if it's a gymnastics or something else that they have to do, you know, like one or two enjoys it and the other one don't. So I, I can understand how a well-defined curriculum and activities that is not tailored to their interests can be frustrating, boring, or any other way we can, you know, describe it. Are children inherently self-directed learners? 
I, I don't think they are only self-directed. They are, I think they are more directed by passion and love. And it doesn't have to be their own passion and love. It can be my passion or love or someone they meet who has a passion and, or love for something. And they'll get it from, from whoever they, they meet. Okay, so it can be self-directed, but it can also be other-directed. If you meet someone who talks about something and he loves it, you, you're going to learn from him. If you meet someone who talks about something you love, but he doesn't love it, you probably lose interest. They, they can be self-directed, but they don't have to be. So it's basically finding what we like, what is interesting, what we want to learn more. Yes. And either we can find it ourselves, say if I'm, you know, I'm on the computer and I'm searching for something and I find it, or I can listen to you talk about something and then that intrigues me and I want to know more about it. Yes, yes. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more now about creating the environment that they get all these, let's call them triggers. We talk, you know, we talk about the library yes. and the, the internet that they have access to, but what is the environment that, that you feel comfortable that they are getting enough triggers so they can find what they like and then yeah. they can find also they can actually learn it? Yeah, so there are two, two important things about this. First, they will never get enough triggers. For example, I think it's very important to, uh, for all of us to learn Chinese about Chinese culture, but here in Israel, almost nobody learns it. We just started now to learn Chinese, but all these years missed when they were little. Uh, they didn't learn it. We didn't have anyone to help us with that. So, no, they don't get everything that they need. Uh, they don't get uh, all the triggers that I would have wanted them to. Because that's life. If you're directed by life, life is, uh, you don't have everything in it, only some things. The second thing is what is called short feedback loops. So, if you go with a board curriculum or with school curriculum, someone designed it and then they, uh, they implement it, they, they put it uh, to practice. And maybe some years later, they learn how well it did. Maybe someone did a research and see if it did well or not, and then they can change it. What we have in homeschooling, we're not that smart maybe, and we don't have like a million children to test it on, but we can see if something works right now. And we can change it right now if it doesn't. And we can try something else. So we have very short feedback loops and a lot of freedom to try many things and see what works. So if you try, you think that the child should learn Chinese, it's the most important thing. And you try it and it doesn't work. You can try something else for him to learn. Or you can try a different way to uh, study Chinese. Or you can, you can try many things. Or you can study it yourself first and see... So you have short feedback loops. You can try uh, many triggers and see what works. So I understand that short feedback loops make the learning flexible and adaptive. Adaptive, exactly. Okay, and very and as quickly as you choose. Yeah, so it's not all up to you. Uh, sometimes you need to find some outside resources, but still, it's yeah. It's pretty short. Did you experience any time throughout your journey of many years now unschooling for children that you struggled with? I think there are little struggles all the time. I mean, the children change. Maybe they liked something uh, once and then they don't like it anymore and they're a bit bored. 
or maybe suddenly they want something and you can't offer it because you have no resources. It changes all the time and you need to improvise and find new things. That's another thing. Okay. As I'm thinking of the children's skills, I'm also thinking of the skills you have or you have been developing, you're not. Because when I hear, you know, your experience, you are confident and you have trust in your ability to manage a situation that doesn't have a lot of guardrails and, uh, you know, uh, roadmaps. A lot of trial and error. So I studied science in the university. And that's that what you do as a scientist. You, you try things and you see, you, you have to be honest about the results. You can't say, I tried, but I want, I want to know the result in advance. And if it's not what I think, I will still do what I, I expected. No, you, you need to change your theories according to the results. Okay. So the, I think in parenting too, you try something, maybe some parenting expert said to do it, and uh, then you try it on your child, and sometimes it works, sometimes not. And you can't continue to do what doesn't work. How do you measure, like, what is a good day? What is a good uh, unschooling day for you? What are you looking to, I don't know, to measure, to see, to observe? Oh, I don't think you can know it at the time it happens because many things, like you discover them like weeks, maybe years later that they happened. You thought nothing happens. And then the child came to you with a thought that they had or with some decisions that they made and you didn't know it at the time or with something that happened that didn't seem important, but it had a lasting impact. So I don't think you can know. Now you reinforce once more the skill that you have, which I think is not as common. So when did you start being so confident again that no matter what happens, even if you don't, we cannot measure because the result is not today available or in two weeks or five weeks. And now we're talking about the education and the learning of your children. How did you become confident and content with this level of ambiguity? I didn't know it in the, in the start. I learned it through experience, some of it very bitter, but it takes time and, and you see things that you didn't know. If you were to go back to when you started your journey, how, how many years now have you been unschooling your children? So 22, 21. Okay, that's a long time. Yeah. So if you were to go back, is there anything you would have done differently? Yeah, I think one thing I would do differently is uh, go to homeschooling uh, gathering right from the start. It took me about a year to, to meet other homeschoolers. And I think the community is so, so important, both for the children, but also for the parents, to meet other people on the same path as you. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this part, because I can imagine there are listeners out there, parents, who are maybe intrigued by your uh, comments and your journey, and they want to get started. What is, let's say, the most important thing you would uh, suggest they do to make their journey not predictable, but uh, like easier? What is the, the, what's the one thing they should focus first? Yeah, even before they de decide whether to do it or not, because it takes time. It took me time. 
go meet homeschooling families, go to the gatherings. Uh, there are usually regular meetings in, in most areas, in most cities, maybe in a library, maybe in a park, and see them in person, see the children in person, meet the older children, see what they do, uh, what kind of people they are. Don't be alone. Let's go back to the community, because uh, 20 years ago, you did something that's common today. You started a virtual community to bring together families of homeschoolers and schoolers. How did this come about? So I was uh, an early adopter of the Internet, of the World Wide Web, and uh, I was hanging around in the, around in the original uh, WikiWiki that later uh, was copied to many other sites, including Wikipedia. And I loved it. And I was looking for an excuse to write my own wiki that will have uh, Hebrew support. Uh, and when I met the other uh, homeschooling families, they asked me if I can make them a, a forum, you know, uh, a web forum. And I said, oh, you don't want a forum, you want a wiki. And they had no idea what it was, but uh, since I was uh, the only one who could uh, make it for them, they, they let me do what I want. And this is how we started the site, Boffin TV, which exists, still exists, is still very active. Back then, I took, I took people that did not use computers almost at all. I put them in front of the screen and tell them, look, read that, now write something. They didn't know what they were doing, but they found it. interesting and uh, engaging and people use the computer only for that single site. Did specific activities happen for the children out of this uh, virtual community? Yes, yes. So at first some of the children were just learning to, to read and write. They started their own uh, pages in the wiki and actually some learned to write there. And then they asked me to have a separate wiki for them. And uh, we, we started it and they had a lot of fun there. They had, uh, besides the discussions, they did a lot of creative stuff, like creative writing, writing stories together, or each one writes his story and they have like a competition and uh, many, many things. And, and like doing costumes, like uh, making themselves write like someone else. They had fun. These children, which are now in their 20s, they're all friends still. Did you have or did you facilitate their wiki or did, they, did you let them lose to do their own thing? Yes, yes, they were lose to do their own thing. Did anything, I have to ask, did anything go wrong? No. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe they had fights, but uh, I was in connection with other parents, so... No one said that uh, something wrong happened, so, but, but I promised them that I would not look. They'll, they'll have their uh, space. Because if, if you think about yourself as a teenager, would you write in a place where your mother would... Uh, no. no. Exactly. I'm trying to think of what they learned through this uh, experience. So I, I grew up in an environment that, because my mom had to work, And because there were 40 children in the classroom, I did not get enough attention. But I, I actually see it now and view this aspect. I never complained about it. I view it as not that I did not have attention, but I had enough freedom 
And at the same time, I had learned responsibility. So I wouldn't create trouble, but I also had all the freedom, basically to do things I wanted to do in a way that I wanted to do it, right? But again, without causing any trouble, I learned very early on in my life what it, what it means to be responsible and why I, need, why I need to be responsible and respectful. So I'm thinking like, is this what your children or the children of, you know, homeschooling and unschooling families experience, but in a completely different setting and for a completely different reason? I think independence is very something very important, you know, not, not to help the child with, but not to stop them. Both uh, conventional parenting and conventional schooling, they talk about developing independence, but in practice, you don't need to, it, de- it develops it's without help. You just need not to stop it, not to, to, you know, to say no whenever a child tries to do something by themselves. And it starts when they're like two and they want to help you cut the salad and you don't want them to have the knife. But I I have a special knife uh, so a small child can take it without cutting their own hand, but they can cut a a cucumber with no trouble. Even if they make a a big mess, they still still learn something important. And the bigger child, they'll want to take the bus along. And a still bigger child will want to organize the camping with their friends without any adults. And in each of these cases, you can tell them no, or you can tell them, make sure you remember to check where, where is a good place to sleep, what you need to get there, or I don't know. You can help them. You, you can get out of the way or you can stop them. And when you don't stop them, they develop independence. You don't have to teach it. It just happens. I want to continue in this conversation, but I want to pose a question here. If I'm a parent who is uh, listening to what you are talking about, but for whatever reasons, unschooling or homeschooling is not for me and my family, I'm wondering, uh, and I'd love to hear your insights, how... Or what can school learn from homeschooling and unschooling, especially from unschooling, which is a completely different uh, way of learning? What can school learn from unschooling, again, to create independent learners who own their learning and they will do good in life, whatever they might choose to do? So I'll tell you a story I heard from a teacher. She's a science teacher. And she said... She took uh, the curriculum and just threw it all away. And she asked the children what interests them. What do they want to, to do? And they want to do all kinds of crazy things or boring things. And she helped them with that. Sometimes she helps them herself. Sometimes she calls someone else who, who can help. She lets them uh, interview uh, experts. And they do like their own, they find their own path. She, she supplies uh, whatever she can both uh, connections and uh, materials, but they are the one uh, taking it, uh, uh, deciding on the way, on what they want, on the goal, and she just helps them get there. So it's self-directed learning in school. Of course, it's only only science. If they like something else except science, that's like, I don't know, acrobatics, then she wouldn't be able to help them with that. But uh, within, within the confines of the science, which are very wide, she, she can uh, help them. Yeah, another thing I, I think you can do both at home and in school is the short feedback loops. 
see what works. If something doesn't work, then just stop it. You, even doing nothing is better than continuing with something that doesn't work. For example, if you teach a child something and they don't get it, stop teaching them. Even if you, you don't teach them anything, it will be better than trying to do something that they don't get. They make them feel stupid, make them believe they can't get it. It's better to do nothing. I hear you talk about these things and I'm thinking there is a lot of let go of control. And when I, when I talk of control, I don't mean it in a bad way. Control, you know, when you are giving them a specific exercise to do or a test or whatever it is and homework, you're guiding it in a way like you have some control because you are guiding down a path. In your case, you say if they don't learn or they don't respond well to the subject or the approach, just stop it. How do we get to the end point with your approach that seems to have almost zero control? Yes, but I want to say that the opposite of control is not neglect. It's, it's one opposite of control. But there is another option, which is involvement without control. For example, when I talk to you, and if I want to talk about something and you don't want to talk about it, it doesn't mean I, I go away. I can try to talk about something else, right? It's a conversation. It's a dialogue. And the same thing with children. If I want to teach them something and they don't want to learn it, it doesn't mean I go away. I can do something else with them. I can hug them. I can uh, take them outside and play. I can, uh, I don't know, I do something on my own, see if they want to do something on their own or join me. I can do numerous uh, things that are not controlled, but is, are still involved with them. Okay, so it's involvement and engagement and connection versus yeah. control of what they will do yeah. exactly and precisely based on you know what you may think is going to work. Yes, because many people think that if you give up control, then you you have to become uh, neglectful. You neglect or disconnect, and that's not true. Okay, so this is this goes back to what you talked about earlier, which is about being also flexible. So even if you're not flexible, okay, because we're not flexible all the time, you you can not be controlling and not be flexible, but still uh, not disconnect. Let's say I want you to learn multiplication tables and you don't want to, okay? And I'm inflexible about that. But right now, I don't have to do it right now. I, I can, right now I can do something else. Like, I don't know, I can hug a child. I can read the multiplication tables myself. I can do something which is unrelated. I haven't given up my uh, rigidity but I'm not controlling the child at that moment. So there's an element of time. Yes. We, we, that's, I think, the greatest, one of the greatest uh, gifts in homeschooling, that you have time. Okay. Now I'm asking all these questions. There's, you know, they may sound stupid to people, like that they know much more about unschooling and homeschooling than I do. But again, I've, I've been through the educational system and it worked for me. I know we are talking about a lot of things we want to change. And that's why I'm having this conversation, trying to figure out, like, what are the things, the, you know, the, the extreme control we have, starting with the curriculum and the tests and everything else. Or, you know, at 10 o'clock, we have chemistry and at 11 o'clock, we have art and at two o'clock, we have this and that, which creates a thing, as you talked about, it's not necessarily that children may not want to do that at all, but f somehow they may need to do it at a later time. 
So we allow them that. Yes. And also the approach. Some children like to read. Some children don't like to read. They like to talk with people. So you're giving them the opportunity to go and interview people. Yes. So the learning happens, again, on the certain subjects, you know, we discuss and we choose that we think we want to learn, but it just happens in a different way. So there is flexibility and flexibility with approach and time. Yes. And as we mentioned times, uh, one of the interesting things is most learning doesn't happen in chunks of 45 minutes. It might take like five seconds to learn something, or it may take five years. And uh, when you th- see children doing something, sometimes they'll do it for a few minutes and then do something else, and it's still meaningful. Sometimes they, they will do a certain activity for hours and hours, and, and they'll be wholly in that. And in, in school, you don't have, uh, like, you can't do one thing all day. And for someone that is really immersed in something, just cutting them after, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half, it's not enough. It's not enough time. And if I'm thinking about myself, I'm, as a programmer, sometimes you, you're so much inside the problem, you don't feel time. Yeah. And it make, you make wake up several hours later and find out, oops, it's dark outside. I didn't notice. <laughs> Jonathan, I want to ask a question. So, and I will make it specific and you will see where I'm going. So you studied math and science and everything else because of what you were interested in. Uh, Did you want all your children to learn math? Did you think that was an important thing to learn? Of course. But, uh, you know, sometimes they don't agree. (laughs) Okay. So what do you do and how do you handle when they say, well, this is hard. I don't want to learn it. But how do you teach them the, the biggest thing, which is perseverance and, you know, patience and resilience? When things get tough, you got to stay at it and make progress. First of all, they do like things that are tough. They don't like things that are boring and easy things are boring. So, for example, each one of them uh, had a you know, time when they liked me to give them simple arithmetic problems, uh, like, you know, just addition. And usually when I had enough, I needed to do something else. I'd give them, now you write some, some problems to solve. And what they invented was, was always much tougher than whatever I gave them to do. So if I asked them about, I don't know, 20 plus uh, 30, they would write 2,000 plus 30,000. Okay? Always they like the tough things. When they don't do something, something it's not because it's not tough. It's because they're not connected to it. They don't see the connection to their own experience. It's not because it's tough. Tough is interesting. Tough is fun. So it's not what we teach, it's how we teach it and how we make it relevant to them so they connect with it. No, it's also, it's also what we teach. For example, if I think Chinese is very important, but if you don't think that Chinese is important, you wouldn't learn it. It would be boring for you. Yeah. Because I'm not interested. I don't like it. I don't, yeah, yeah it's, it's not for me or, yeah, okay. But then maybe you'll, you'll read some some book that is originally in Chinese and you, you'll want to understand it in the original language because it's just so good. True. Okay, so it suddenly becomes relevant and interesting. Okay. Tough, mm-hmm. but interesting. Tough, but interesting and relevant. Okay. Yes. 
um, these are very unique insights. So I'm taking, you know, I'm, I'm giving myself time to let them sink and uh, reflect on that. I want to talk about another topic that I think it's a good segue. You said at the beginning that your son wanted to be at home, to be with his mom and be part of your life instead of going to school and doing things that, you know, teachers were asking him to do. So I can imagine that you had much more time to talk with him about different things. So what is the role of storytelling in learning? Because when I think of my mom and the time I spent with my mom, which was very little because she had to work and I had to go to school. So we had a couple of hours around the table. Everything I learned from my mom that I still remember and I'm very grateful for, it was through her stories. So let's talk about storytelling and learning. So with children, it's like almost all they do. You tell them what you did this morning and they want to hear it again and again and again and again. It's, they live the stories, even the simplest stories. And then you ask them to tell you something, like to invent something, and they love it. And they tell you all their problems and all their, their questions in their stories that they invent. Uh, but not only stories, there is a, it's called the fantasy play. The children make believe they are, I don't know, like superheroes or dogs or whatever. (laughs) And this is how they really learn. They they learn so much from fantasy play because they try out. It's like a simulation, okay? You, You learn by actually being, not just doing, just being the thing you learn about. I remember my youngest, he's the first child, so he cares a lot about people. When anyone would leave, he would cry because he had to have everyone with him. And when he started playing, one of his first games was to go out and say bye-bye and go away. He he was practicing leaving. It was what's important to him. When I wanted to know what they're learning, I would just listen on their games. And I knew everything because they'd practice it in the games. There's a really great educational thinker called Vygotsky. He's Russian, so I don't know if they know know him very well in uh, the U.S. Uh, He said that when a child plays, he's a head taller. He does things that are above his grade. And I really did see it that, for example, they read better when they're in a fantasy play. They speak other languages better in fantasy play. It's like... It's like jumping on a on a uh, mattress instead of on the ground. Okay, you can allow yourself to do something more brave because you wouldn't hurt yourself. You have a soft landing. Because it's a fantasy game. This is a very yeah. interesting concept now in terms of learning because we also want to motivate our children, help them be more confident in themselves, right? That they can, but also help them envision what I call a better future. All of yes. us, I, ha- I was, I, I envision a better future for myself. And I know what you're talking about, because when we were playing in the neighborhood, I have two sisters, so, you know, we're also playing at home, but also playing in the neighborhood a lot back then. And um, there was a lot of that. Like we were pretending, you know, that we were someone else. And, uh, in these roles, <laughs> there were a lot of, you know, dreams and amazing yes. things that we were talking about. Dreams are planning. Yeah. 
And all it all happens, as you said, like you just need to have like a mattress so that the kids can bounce on instead of having something that's concrete and yes. grounds them or controls them or stops them from fantasy and from yeah. dreams and from everything else they can do. And we don't need any skills for that. Like as skills, we are wired to do that. This is part of the play and the fantasy. Yes, they just do it. Yes. When a child is home, they pull you into the fantasy games. So you can manipulate it a little bit. If you're interested in discussing something with them, finding out something, put it in the game. So, for example, when uh, my uh, child was uh, the big dog and I was his uh, little puppy, I could ask him things and then you, you would have to think about them and tell me. But you did it through play. Yes. And are they, you have four children, so you have a good representation. Are they all responding to what we're talking about in a similar way? Or is it for some children like that more than others? All children I know, both mine and others, do fantasy play, at least when they're little. They do it less and less as they grow up. But I think the longer they do it, the, the better uh, they learn. Mm-hmm. And stories, are they're, they're like a fantasy play, but... You can tell them stories about what will happen, what had happened, what all kinds of imaginations. And one of the things I like is like telling a story about someone who is obviously like them, but uh, is is a fantasy uh, character. And uh, I tell half the story and they tell the other half. So they can make things happen that they want. And I can respond with, with all kinds of problems in, that are in reality. And then they can solve them. It's, it's, like, it's like planning, but uh, without being so invested in what you say, because it's playful. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the, um, how unschooling, homeschooling has helped you and, you know, the community you serve. How has it helped you manage the pandemic restrictions that we had? Yeah, so something that were easier, but something were not because uh, they couldn't see their friends for a long time. And that was very difficult. And they couldn't do many of their uh, regular activities, uh, which for someone who, who's, you know, d- is doing sports all the time to suddenly stop, it's really, really bad. So we, we had to initiate uh, sports uh, at home. But what was easy is that we're used to being with each other. We know each other well, we're with each other a lot. And I think for, for other parents, they needed to uh, learn to be with their children. And some of, for some of them, it was great fun. They discovered they really liked being with their children. And for some of them, it was extremely difficult, both for the parents and the children, uh, to be together all, all so much time. How has unschooling and homeschooling as a movement in education and learning, how has uh, it evolved over the years? Like, are we doing more of homeschooling and unschooling today versus 30 years ago? So I think the numbers are are larger. In Israel, it's still a a very small percentage, much less than 1%. I don't know exactly how much. Uh, In America, I think three or four, maybe even 5%. It's still, it's not like it's a trend. It's not a trend that uh, becomes larger. I don't know that it will ever be. And what's the reason for that? 
I think the reason is lack of uh, community support because people have to go to work and they can't uh, be with each other. So if you can't be with other people, then children cannot be with other people and then you need to find somewhere for them to be. So school is a good solution, like for people who don't have the time, who work or, as you said, who, who cannot be at home and they don't have also the social connection and the community to, to do that. So, so if you read the, the anthropologic uh, literature for people who went to all kinds of uh, other cultures, if you don't have work for, for the entire culture, for everyone, you, you gather, you hunt, but you don't have work that, uh, you know, you, that you get paid for, then everyone is free all the time unless they do something, but generally everyone is free. And so you don't need uh, either the parent or someone specific to take care of the child. The child is free to roam. They can be with their parents or they can be with uh, someone else from the community. Okay, there is no specific uh, role of being in charge of the children. You remember when I asked you earlier, how did you manage to unschool four children, which for me is a lot? You have not really done it all by yourself. No, no, I couldn't have. So building the community and the connection for someone who is starting is the first thing to, to, to learn from, but also build around them. I think so. I think, I think it's extremely important not to be alone on the path. But I think what you are saying now resonates also with, with again, people found themselves at home, working from home. And for many people, this is not temporary. It's going to be, you know, uh, after the pandemic and when things get, let's say, organized in a different way than it is today, still many people will have more options to work from home because a lot of things are changing in the working environment. So now many people may have more options. If I'm thinking about my own neighborhood, which is in the kibbutz, so, so you can walk from house to house. You know, you don't have to go through a road. If everyone is, or, or let's say half the people are at home, working either inside or outside on the porch, then children can roam around and you don't need someone specific to be dedicate, dedicate their time, all their time to the children. Everyone can dedicate a few minutes, have a nice break, play a little, go back to work. So in principle, it's possible. Not all physical environments are good for that. But if you're in an environment where children can actually walk and where people, a big enough percentage are around, then yes, I think that, that would be great for the homeschooling or in general. And I can only imagine that this can help us also with what I call emotional, psychological and mental situation, because a lot of that is driven by the lack of connection, connection to yes. our family, but also connection, you know, as adults to the, our neighbors and our community. So what you're talking about should also help create a more healthy, emotionally and mentally and psychologically healthy community. Yes, but I'm assuming, so I'm thinking about cities. In cities, you can, not all cities allow you to just walk from place to place. So it does need to be like human scaled, uh, adapted to humans, not to cars, so the place. If it, you can only get to someone by car, then that's a problem. If you go to the, I don't know, London, Paris, these are wonderful cities. You can walk from place to yeah. place and it's great fun. Yeah. 
Well, when I was growing up, that was the case. We would basically go out to play. My mom did not worry about that. And uh, we just had to be home before, you know, eight o'clock or before the sun uh, went down, whatever it was. Now I'm talking more like also summer or spring breaks or summer time. But that was it. And there was no concern whatsoever. And we would play, but also sometimes we would go to a, you know, a house of friends and we would have a snack. All these things were happening. I mean, everybody had their door, yeah. their door open, right? This is now in Athens, block of apartments, but, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, much safer, basically... It was a very much interactive and connected community. And one day the kids would have snack in one uh, home. The other day we would go to the next one. You know, the mothers apparently yeah. had figured this out. Maybe there was a plan. <laughs> but we as kids were just playing and having a lot of fun. Yeah, and people have not changed so much since then. It's just that the way we are organized changed. But we can, we can organize in a way that is beneficial to people. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm having so much fun with this conversation. <laughs> it's time for my favorite question, although I think all of my questions today <laughs> were different and favorite. So what is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? Oh, I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not here to, to make a mark. I'm just here to live. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say I'm not surprised to hear your <laughs> response. <laughs> Why would you have a goal? <laughs> because you are here to live your life. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Yonad. That was a wonderful conversation and I learned so much from you. Thank you again for uh, joining me. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.